You are listening to the Legal Design Podcast. My name is Henna Tolvanen. And I am Nina Toivonen. This is Legal Talk Out of the Box. Today we have Marie Patel Savi and Elizabeth Talbourday joining us and we will talk about designing compliance. They both work at Amurabi, a legal innovation by design agency, and have done amazing work with designing compliance. Welcome to our show. Hello, it's such an honor to be talking to you ladies and thanks a lot for the invitation. We are thrilled. Yeah, thank you for having us. Great to have you with us, ladies. How is it going? <laughs> <laughs> going really well. <laughs> we we decided to uh, not not to care too much uh, <laughs> about the special the special circumstances, uh, and just focus on work. So that um, yeah, personally, I'm I'm, I'm doing well. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. We've uh, we even have a bit of sunshine before the end of the day. So. Really good. Oh, exactly. Spring that sounds great. <laughs> nice. um, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Elizabeth, you want to start? Sure. Um, so my name is Elizabeth. I am French. Uh, I am a lawyer by, <clears throat> I'm initially a lawyer and I've joined Amurabi as a project manager as well. So um, I've been working at Amurabi for almost two years now and with Marie for almost three. And I'm a true passionate of legal design. So very happy to talk about this with you ladies. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, my name is Marie. And I guess a good way of defining myself is simply to say that I get up in the morning <laughs> to hopefully reduce the gap between uh, the law and users. Hey, how did you two get interested in legal design in the first place? Where did it start? <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's uh, it's a usual question, of course. Um, as far as I'm concerned, and Elizabeth was there from the start, it, it all started at uh, Estee Lauder um, when I was a, a GC over there covering EMEA. And actually, I had a, a brilliant uh, team, but very limited. You know, it was only four four lawyers covering EMEA. So obviously, I was looking for efficiency tools, basically, to do ever more with ever less. Uh, yeah. So I began. I began exploring legal tech. To be honest, I had. I hadn't heard about legal design uh, at all. That was back in 2017. Uh, and so I, I began exploring legal tech um, in the search for these efficiency tools. Um, and I came across legal design really by chance. <laughs> uh, I came across Margaret Hagen's website, of course. And it really caught my attention because it seemed that it could solve so many of my pain points as a GC. Um, It almost seemed too good to be true, to be honest. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I first uh, spent um, a good amount of my summer holidays uh, browsing her, her website and exploring the various tools she was um, uh, presenting and the various projects and the methodology. And and after after that, I just wanted to to experience it for myself. Uh, so um, I 
we uh, came across the Legal Design Summit <laughs> uh, and I applied to the Brain Factory before the summit and I, uh, I participated because I really, I really needed to see it for myself if it, if it was actually for real. <laughs> so after the, the, the two-day Brain Factory, which was pretty intense, um, you know, I had realized that um, this methodology could work. Uh, of course, I, I didn't know exactly how I would implement it in my uh, legal division, but I really wanted to try. So that's how I started in my own team, in my own legal division. I started one first project, um, which was uh, a success and then another one and then another one uh, and and Elizabeth you were where, you were there uh, at Estelle from the start right yeah exactly so um, I was doing my traineeship as a lawyer in France and uh, as part of the traineeship you have to do six months internship in a in a legal division and so I joined Marie's team I think it was January 2017 I yeah think. Yeah, or 2018, <laughs> yeah. I don't remember. And um, and yeah, I def. I mean, for me, it was really Marie who opened, you know, the perspective. And then when when we did this first project in house, I was very, you know, convinced and interested by the methodology. I think I was also very surprised that we didn't really ever came across this discipline as a, you know, very recent. I mean, it makes sense that people who've graduated from law school, you know, maybe 10 years ago, didn't un even hear about legal design because it wasn't really a thing then. But even for us, I think it's, it's and still today, it's not taught at university necessarily. And I think that's, that's a bit of a shame. So for me, it was great to have this experience in-house and also to be able to test right away. I think when, one of the misconceptions about legal design is that it's very, you know, empirical and very, you know, something that, research almost but it's not necessarily as concrete although that's changing a lot and I think we're doing a good job at changing that perspective as well at least in France but um yeah so for me it was it was really added a lot of first and then quite quite rapidly when Marie created um Amouavi we I joined and we've been yeah. doing this ever since yeah, I think, you know, what, what made me um, feel like creating my own agency was simply um, after three projects in-house, uh, what I had seen was um, uh, a great level of engagement of the business people I was there to serve. And this does not happen every day. As you know, being an in-house lawyer is a great job, but also full of constraints and frustrations. <laughs> um, and one of these frustrations is clearly the fact that the business does not want to listen to legal advice. Um, <laughs> so familiar. it's kind of, <laughs> sounds familiar. So um, I guess, you know, what, what really made me realize that something very significant was happening with legal design methodology was when two uh, different uh, business people came to me after a given um, compliance training I had uh, I had provided uh, to the to the team, um, which I had uh, legally designed, and and they came to me after the session saying, "Hey, I had no idea that the law could be so clear and." and that the training could be so useful from a business perspective, do you think you could train my own team? 
And quite frankly, um, I had uh, given dozens of compliance training uh, at Freshfields and, and Allen and & Overy when I was in private practice. And then again, dozens as an in-house lawyer at Chanel or, or Amoabi. And I had absolutely never, ever <laughs> had anyone asking for more. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Usually they try to hide at the back of the room. <laughs> and, you know, they secretly uh, <laughs> wow. take their emails or do something else. But... Uh, you know, the best you can get is they politely listen to you, uh, but they really never ask for more. So when that happened, it really clicked in my mind. And I thought, okay, this is really something <laughs> to pursue. And then I quickly realized that if I wanted um, to, to practice law in this very different way then the only possibility was for me to create my own agency and and I just I, I guess I I leaped into um, uh, creating my agency because I was so satisfied uh, with this new way of practicing law that I just couldn't force myself to go back to the old way does that make sense yeah. I love this story this yes. is so great to hear Hey, uh, what does the name Amurabi mean? Elizabeth, do you sure. want to, uh, to answer um, that? So the name, we had a lot of thinking on that name. Um, we actually, you know, used the, uh, the help of a semiologist um, to really come up with a name that was meaningful, but that also, you know, you see a lot of Lex something, you know, very, <laughs> a lot of the company, um, legal techs in general, but also legal design agencies. So we really wanted something that resonated with who we are, what we're trying to achieve. And so Amurabi is actually um, the first code that was ever created. Um, it goes back to the, um, uh, which century is it, Marie? I don't want to say anything. It's 17, it's uh, 1750 before Christ. Exactly. Approximately. <laughs> and so the idea of this code is that it was the first written um, example of a, a written law that we ever came across as a civilization. And what we loved about it um, is that the stone was at the center of the citadel for everyone to come and see and you know, it really resonated with what the law truly means, which is to be, you know, accessible to everyone. Um, it's about, it's for everyone. It's about everyone. Then, so this, this, the way that it was represented, written, you know, engraved in this stone and in the middle of center of life uh, for everyone, it really is what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to give back it's that place to the law through legal design. It's really about, you know, putting it at the center of every, every people's daily lives and business life and, you know, not having it be, you know, something so complex that really only a very limited portion of the population can understand and apply. So, and this is a, it's also a beautiful object, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's at uh, the Louvre. Yeah, it's oh, at yeah. the Louvre. Uh, right now, it's probably feeling a bit lonely. <laughs> uh, and so do we. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's a great piece of history, really resonated. So we, we changed it up, of course, a little bit. It's not spelled the same way 
we spell the name but um yeah yeah, yeah. and we, we like to say that king hammurabi uh, which was the the who was this king of babylon at the time who created this first code we like to say that he was um an early adopter of legal design of course of course it's a joke <laughs> <laughs> yeah people the love stories it's a great story and has yeah. a long history as well <laughs> yeah Hey, Marie, so you have a background, well, a long background in more traditional legal work. Yeah. Um, did you have to explain a lot when you sort of changed careers from traditional law into legal design? What did people think? And what? Well, what's, what's interesting is that on the one hand, um, I clearly remember my best friend who's an in-house law. Uh, and GC uh, telling me that, that I was completely out of my mind <laughs> and, and really not, not understanding at all how on earth I could give up my position as a GC to literally jump into the unknown. Um, so, and, and I got a, a, a lot of, of these reactions. But on the other hand, um, I didn't have any explanation to do towards business people, towards users of the law who simply, you know, saw, uh, they, they simply had to see the outcome of any legal design project to be completely convinced, you know? So that's interesting because yes, it's very surprising for lawyers. However, it makes perfect sense to business people. And usually the reaction I, I get a lot is why, why have um, why didn't you, didn't you do that before? You know, <laughs> why have I been forced uh, to apply those ridiculous um, contract templates, uh, very authoritative in small print that no one understands? Why has it been so long until legal design came to light? Basically, so you know, it's it's very interesting to see those those different perspectives. What we have to still explain today um, is the methodology and how um, scientifically grounded it is. <laughs> um, I think that's also due to the fact that, of course, there are various ways of practicing legal design, and that's great. Um, uh, it, it's the, the, the point is to explain that it, it doesn't come by magic. It's not, you know, it's natural to feel like um, putting um, the emphasis on, on the beautiful outcome. Uh, so people tend to believe that uh, it's kind of magic and it's just, uh, you know, making contracts uh, looking pretty. <laughs> Obviously, that's not at all what, what legal design is. And we still have to explain a lot the methodology. What does it mean, um, uh, you know, this human centricity, this user centricity of the law? How do we do a user profile, um, a user journey? Uh, that, that still requires a lot of explanation but we found that um, explaining also the neuroscience basis and, and um, the neuroscience methodology really helps uh, in terms of advocacy, if that's, uh, if that's the right term for, for that. Oh, wow, that's really good to hear. And I love the part that you got feedback from the client side saying that this makes sense. 
when you started the company, was it just you working there? And how has the team grown? And what kind of professionals does the team consist of today? Because I believe that you have other people than lawyers working (laughs) in Amrabi. (laughs) Definitely, this is completely multidisciplinary. So um, to be very clear, when I started the the company, it's always been my company, but at at the time, back in 2018, I was very lucky uh, to to get a fantastic help um, from Auntie Nanan and Johanna Rantanen, uh, whom you know, of course, as well as uh, Emma Hetzberg and um, and Mira Sivanathan um, from DOT. So at the time, um, they not they didn't only um, allow me to use the dot brand um, they also uh, helped me um, uh, gaining the the necessary trust to leap into this adventure I have to say I clearly remember I flew to Helsinki at some point in the winter it was very very cold and um, and I, I simply told them you know how ha- how do I know if I'm capable of doing that? <laughs> um, and, and they were very uh, sympathetic. And also um, auntie simply replied, um, that there's no problem at all. You've been doing uh, these projects internally. We've seen you work and, and you will make it and we will help you. So that was a fantastic uh, help to start with. And I'm, even though now I no longer operate under the dot brand, obviously it's not my own brand, but but I'm very, very grateful to them. Um, and it's not because we no longer work under the same brand that uh, we're no longer friends on the contrary. Um, I, I completely support um, Auntie's uh, revival of DOT uh, since a couple of months. And, and I, I'm sure he, he's, uh, he's going to, to do a fantastic job with his own team. So that's for the start, you know, so I started under the umbrella of the DOT team and for some time, well, that was pretty quick, but uh, for let's say six to nine months, um, I also had the help of Hema. Uh, Emma Hertzberg as a designer. Uh, So she was in Helsinki, I was in Paris, but we would um, work together. So that's really how it started. But quickly, let's say after six, yeah, six to nine months, I realized that I needed to have my own team of designers. So the first addition (laughs) to the Paris um, team uh, was, of course, uh, designers. Um, But then very quickly as well, uh, when I did my um, professional thesis at a design school in Paris for my master's degree in innovation by design, um, I researched um, the basically the the foundations uh, of uh, information design. And I came across New York Science and it was so fascinating um, to understand, to begin to understand how the human brain uh, captures information, how the eye captures information, how that translates to the brain and how you can help the brain digesting the information more easily. And quite frankly, I'm surprised that neuroscience is not taught at um, law school at all uh, because it is an information job (laughs) to be a lawyer. It is a convincing job um, and, and it Neuroscience brings so much value that uh, very quickly I felt the need to resort to specialists. So we're very lucky to have Dominique Ashby on board um, as um, an expert in neuroscience 
in change management, thanks to neuroscience. She's the founder of a company called uh, Neuro at Work. And, and on top of that, she's absolutely uh, uh, adorable and a fantastic human being. Uh, but we are lucky to work with her if um, the project requires it, so on an ad hoc ad hoc basis. And we're also very lucky uh, to collaborate with a PhD in um, cognitive neuroscience, um, her name is and she helped us creating our testing lab. So uh, she helped us um, for the entire lab and we also work with her uh, on uh, various projects. For example, uh, the one with the French Data Protection Authority. We heavily relied on her for the test methodology with um, children. So, you know, that's obviously very important for us to have not just lawyers and designers collaborating, but also additional experts and neuroscience and, and behavioral sciences is a key component of the multidisciplinary approach. Um. Let's talk about corporate compliance or designing compliance now. What is actually compliance by design? Um, actually, I, I like to, to talk about designing compliance, compliance by design. Uh, but I guess what, what we mean by that is leveraging human centricity, user centricity um, to avoid um, a classic pitfall in compliance, which is tick the box. Um, I guess it's um, my approach and, and our approach is, is also based on, on my experience as a GC, um, which was unfortunately <laughs> um, that many companies and many legal divisions still consider compliance as a formalistic uh, thing as a tick the box uh, approach. So, you know, for example, um, as long as uh, we've uh, delivered a 100 page PowerPoint to the business uh, in EMEA, for example, we consider that we've done the job. And if they haven't understood or if they don't really want to comply, that's not a problem. And we should go on with, <laughs> with the rest of our lives. Um, I've heard that, to be honest, I've heard that. And, uh, and that's just completely unacceptable. And I think it's a serious misconception of what it means to be an in-house lawyer, uh, even more so when you're a GC, when you're in charge. It's a serious misconception because, um, first of all, it's absolutely obvious that in any area of the law, um, a formal compliance program is doomed to fail. Tons of uh, <laughs> literature for that and, and research, you know, whether it's the DOJ, whether it's the European Commission, and, and obviously in France as well, um, if you don't make the effort to ensure that your compliance program is actually implemented, which means understood by users, then it's not even a valid defense. So that's one very good reason <laughs> not to uh, have this take the take the box approach, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, it's so frustrating for a lawyer to have this approach. Like, oh, we've done our job and, and now um, 
let's do something else. And it's not a problem if they haven't understood it. And, and I think it's, um, it's also what could create a lot of, um, well, lack of motivation in legal teams and lack of satisfaction and a lack of purpose. Um, so that's what it means, compliance by design, is first, it means compliance period. You know, if you really want to comply, then of course you have to design it uh, because there's no formalistic compliance. There's only effective compliance. Um, otherwise you don't comply. <laughs> um, and, and second, it's also basically being happy and proud about what you do every day. I guess it, it also comes a lot from my background as a competition lawyer. Uh, so obviously competition compliance is a key uh, <laughs> component of, in this area. Um, and I've seen too many uh, competition compliance programs being completely uh, theoretical and it's, it's completely um, uh, irrelevant. And there's actually um, this very good article by uh, the former compliance expert at the DOJ, Huey Chan, a couple of years ago in the Harvard Business Review, um, explaining that uh, she considers most compliance programs um, that she's seen in the, in the US as mere window dressing uh, exercises, um, formal, uh, formal programs, uh, which completely miss the purpose. So I guess compliance by design is really avoiding that and doing exactly the opposite. It's so, it really makes sense. But I think people are, we can say maybe aloud, people are lazy. Like <laughs> when they have their attention on something they, which is on their desk, something they love to do. And then when the lawyer comes or the boss comes and says, okay, now we have to uh, start using this new protocol and make sure that what you do also is in line with these requirements. And if you don't really understand why it's necessary, you just don't do it. And, and exactly. it's so humane. Exactly. What is the first thing you do when you start your process of designing compliance? And what methods do you usually use? I guess the, the very first thing um, is defining the users and, and caring for the users. <laughs> so I guess it's like in any other legal design project, um, except maybe you have to care even more for the users who are the most exposed to the compliance uh, risks. Um, so, you know, for example, export teams, uh, people dealing with custom officers uh, and the like. Um, so the very first thing is defining the users most exposed to these risks and, and really talk to them. Uh, so uh, we usually do several workshops with a representative selection of the most exposed users. Um, so we do that in groups of 15 to 20 people, depending on um, how many facilitators we are. Um, and it's really about understanding their own business journey when they come across compliance issues. 
Um, so we've, we, we reverse the focus, obviously. We don't start with the rules, uh, like, you know, corruption or gifts and, um, and uh, events. Uh, we really start from their own uh, user journey and their own pain points. Uh, and that's the methodology we use, which is completely classic yeah, in terms of design thinking. Um, so we did that, for example, to redesign an anti-corruption um, code of conduct. Uh, and we created with them during a workshop, uh, several user journeys, you know, one uh, when they're facing um, issues with gifts, you know, can you invite a client to a restaurant? Can you, um, make any any gifts at Christmas time, for example, to even more uh, more substantial issues um, about uh, corruption and uh, influence peddling. And so it's really about um, defining those user journeys very precisely and with uh, the stakeholders themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense, but uh, it's you. It's it's very rarely the case, and yeah. you may find you may find lawyers who are actually uh, reluctant to hear the reality <laughs> from, I can uh, from the <laughs> business teams. <laughs> so we, we did that as well uh, for a, a very large group in um, another compliance area, which is international sanctions. You know, embargoes and um, asset freeze, that kind of things. Um, and, and actually the, the methodology makes a lot of sense. And interestingly enough, you know, even though the main reaction of business people when faced with, please save me from, from that pain, um, actually in, in each case, when uh, we had those uh, workshops with the users going through their user journey when faced with those issues, uh, they were very much engaged. They were very much willing to share with us the problems. And, and again, you know, it's absolutely not about twisting the rule or saying, oh, by the way, no, that's not too serious. <laughs> it's absolutely not about that, but it's just about listening to what's difficult for them. Why is it difficult and how we can help them? First, understanding why it matters to, to comply and then bringing them the tools so that it's easier to comply. Um, when you start to design compliance for a company, do you have to do some kind of due diligence to, to know, for example, how to, what is the culture of, of the company? Like how in reality, I mean, like they can say in brochures and in their marketing that they want to do this or that, but then in real reality, there may, may be some kind of tensions, for example, between the employees that affect how how well it is actually to comply with certain rules. Uh, can you tell about this this process a bit? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and and maybe Elizabeth will want to jump in. Basically, as as you know, uh, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> so uh, we always we always do a preliminary uh, research phase about the culture. And and for example, we did that. Um, in a telecom company uh, with the help of Dominique, by the way. So maybe Elizabeth, you want to talk a bit about the organizational, um, uh, well, the, the, the cultural, sorry, the cultural aspect of our project. Yeah, so um, the cultural aspect of um, each of our clients is 
essential uh, to our projects. And that's why personally, I love our job so much because it is so interesting to dive into um, a company's culture and understand how they operate. It is so different to create a compliance program for a beauty company with, you know, the main target could be, you know, marketing. Um, usually there, they can be women that are in their 30s. And then we do a project for engineers that are in their 60s and mostly male. So obviously, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it sounds, I'm taking two extremes here, but it's just to say that each project is different. And I think that's where legal design makes sense. And that's why it's so impactful. And that's why it's so crucial in compliance program, because the only way for people to truly comply is if the rule makes sense for them. It doesn't, it, it, it hasn't, there's no point. And that's true for anyone, really. You're not gonna, and especially, I mean, this is a much broader subject of how, you know, our rules right now are <laughs> affecting each of our lives and how everyone's feeling impacted or not. But it's just to say that, of course, if you feel like a rule makes sense for you in your business case and is thought, you know, to apply to you, you're m way more likely to comply to it than rather if it's, seems like this empirical rule that is supposed to apply to anyone and you kind of have this excuse of saying oh you know this rule was made by people who don't know anything about what I do so really that's not really any of my concern so this is a crucial part of our project this is why also Dominique's help and neuroscience and cognitive science are essential because obviously um, they've evaluated that for instance people have um, this thing they do is um, saying a sentence to convince themselves that they're in the right not to follow a rule. So saying sort of, oh, I'm just doing my job. I'm not like, you know, some kind of, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody else does it. Yeah, or like um, I'm not a gangster. I'm just trying to do my job. Or, <laughs> exactly. Know. Yeah, uh, we hear a lot of people saying, I don't, and this was in a very recent project, they were saying to us, I don't understand why we have to always have 10 out of 10 when all of our competitors have two out of 10 and no one's doing anything about it. And so, and it was about, you know, um, our GDPR compliance. They're saying like their website are not compliant at all. And we're here trying to make it, you know, 10 out of 10, but they're two out of 10 and no one cares. Why am I trying to, you know, work so hard? And then you go back to the value, the value of the brand you're trying to, you know, put forward the value of the company, the value of, people also and that's also where sometimes it has its limits because some people probably have different sets of values and sometimes you'll see people who are very you know reluctant and there's you know that's not that's also also those who we focus the most on because the more reluctant users you have the more impact you also can have so we focus on them their needs their constraints we often have in our workshops, you know, people who are like, I don't understand what we're doing this. This is pointless. Why am I here? This is a waste of my time. And then that's at the beginning. And then throughout the workshop, they're actually talking about themselves. And there's actually a limited time in companies' lives where you're actually being asked about, you know, what's going on? How are you doing? <laughs> what could we do mm -hmm. to change things? So we always turn it around and there's, we never have a project where we've been fighting resistance from beginning to end. There's always, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that's also why legal design is 
really so meaningful. Uh, and yeah, I think understanding good culture is really something that's also part of the design thinking aspect and methodology. There's, you know, no point in trying to design something if you're not, you know, making sure that it's well integrated into a certain context and environment. So um, it's integral to what we do. Well, I work with legal compliance in some projects and I often hear people saying that if compliance related policies and documents are understandable on the employee level, there is no way they can be accurate enough to meet the requirements. And I feel like I'm trying to find balance with the legal skeptics and people who are trying to understand the employee level how to find the level that is legal enough for the skeptics but understandable and meaningful enough for all the employees do you have any tips for well, this well Hannah I, I might have to disagree here okay because, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> if I may of course. Uh, because I I think this is really a misconception that uh, something understandable uh, for employees, for users, is not going to be legal enough. Exactly. Um, and and I am I'm completely uh, <laughs> uh, yeah in a position because um, well first of all there's a very precise and effective methodology to fight that misconception which is called plain English plain language uh, yeah. and it, it's completely valid it's it's been there for decades you've got tons of academics writing about it you've got dictionaries of plain um, English um, and and uh, thesis written <laughs> about that so yes it is completely possible to be absolutely accurate and precise and extensive yet to present the information and to phrase it in a way and in a language that's accessible um, including if you don't have a PhD <laughs> and um, and I think it's it's this really has to do with the terrible lack in uh, Legal education about plain English and plain language and the fact that um, you're not going to lose any of your legal expertise if you are expressing yourself in an accessible and understandable way. It's quite the opposite. Uh, it's because you are this, this great legal expert um, with, with all your knowledge that you are able to express it in a, in a clear way. Uh, in other words, it's possible to make any area of the law simple and accessible, not simplistic. Um, so to me, um, I'm, it's not a, absolutely not about finding a balance. It's really about changing drastically the way we draft legal documents. Um, and again, um, plain plain language methodology um, is there. <laughs> it's even possible to test it. <laughs> That's why we created our user testing lab. And we've got uh, a series of uh, expert audit methodologies, but also user testing methodology to measure um, the efficiency of the various redrafting uh, while we ensure that it says exactly the same as the original text. 
And if I may jump in here with a, a, an anecdote that I think is very uh, telling to what we've been talking about uh, in a recent workshop. So we do workshops um, where we train legal divisions and oftentimes they'll in, will also include, you know, other people um, that can be the marketing team, that can be designers if they have them in-house and et cetera. And often we see that the not, when we do the plain language exercise, oh, yeah. non-legal people will try to write it in a legal way, <laughs> which makes absolutely no sense. So it's, it's very, and it never fails. It always happens that they'll try to use big words. And Target. then yeah. then we're like, okay, the point of the exercise was to, you know, write in plain English or plain, you know, language. And they're saying, yeah, but it doesn't sound legal. So, in yeah, addition, exactly. It's like yeah, an art so, form. That you yeah, can exactly. And I think so in, in addition to the plain language culture that is very, as Marie just said, like not well known and applied within the legal world, I think it's also a lot about the mindsets of and the perception of what the law is and what the law should be. And that's really on the lawyer's side also to deconstruct those, you know, misconceptions and to say, okay, I'm a lawyer, but I'm also a person. I can speak normally and, you know, <laughs> express myself clearly. And it's, it's also, I think, something that has to do with, um, and that's not, you know, new, but decades of people also using those legalese words to kind of justify their positions and their expertise. And as Marie just said, an, a true expert is not someone, is someone who I can actually translate that complexity in a simple way without changing the scope of the word. So I think it has a lot to do with mindsets. And we yeah. see that in all of our workshops. And it's a lot also about managing change. And, yeah. and, and yeah. talking about managing change, I think it precisely this misconception about, okay, if it's too clear, if it's too accessible, it's not legal enough. That's really changing. For example, uh, we are currently working for HSBC. Um, and, you know, as any international uh, banking organization, uh, they're obviously over compliant and, you know, absolutely yeah. obsessed with compliance. And yet, um, they have launched um, a series of legal design sprints. So we're doing one of them and many other uh, legal design consultancies are, are working with them. Uh, but basically, their goal is to entirely redesign and redraft all of their customer facing contracts in Asia, uh, with a level of language that's equivalent to Harry Potter. Not to say that 13-year-olds are going to read life insurance contracts, <laughs> let alone sign them. But this is extremely interesting. You know, one of the largest leading international banks in the world is absolutely convinced that um, it's going to give them a competitive advantage to have customer-facing contracts uh, in, a, in a language level that's Harry Potter. Interesting. This is, yeah, this is really great. Yeah. I mean, we're and slowly it... starting to see the change in the culture, and that's great. Because sometimes I feel like if we write something in an understandable level and in an, in an understandable language, then there might be some confusing and 
yeah, people might question like, is this legal enough or is this even legal? Absolutely, absolutely. And another question we get a lot as regards, you know, is is clear, is plain language legal enough is, oh, but what do judges think about that? Is a a clear contract a valid one? Um, And and actually, we've got interesting answers to that because we are working very closely with judges in France. Um, uh, It's actually uh, the, the National School for Judges, so the school that trains judges in France, uh, all of them, and they're absolutely convinced of the importance of plain language. We've been working with them for the past six months, and they they just asked us to um, go a bit further in the training program that we're developing for them. So we're going to have several additional sessions precisely to go further on plain language uh, and graphic design as well. But plain language is really a key topic for them. Um, and and interestingly enough, uh, in their mind, um, there's no longer any question about about that. And actually, it's also um, a way of better complying with laws and regulations. So it is changing. This is great news. <laughs> and I didn't slowly. <laughs> expect that you can really combine Harry Potter language with legal design it's really <laughs> I just <laughs> had to start think of that a bit more uh, and and about Harry Potter just to be clear what they meant when they said that was a reading age of 13 years old yeah 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 not yeah. all the spells and, and that language <laughs> that would be interesting that yeah. would be interesting as well but uh, maybe a bit less compliant yeah. <laughs> So if we go back to the corporate responsibility a bit, I think protecting human rights and sustainable development are probably the best known causes that people find meaningful to support. But uh, what other areas of corporate responsibility or corporate policy there are that people can emotionally feel attached to? Or can you actually make people feel empowered to comply by design? No what the cause is i mean if we think for example compliance to tax rules or data protection rules people might not actually find them very compelling well i guess the first way of answering your question is to say that um, what's powerful in legal design is that the user recognizes himself or herself in the content Um, so that it's easier to adopt uh, because you've made it so practical and so tailored to his or her needs. And I guess that's quite agnostic (laughs) to the area of law (laughs) that's that's concerned. Um, Now, it's just the first part of the answer because obviously, um, if what you're trying to achieve is not genuine enough, In other words, you know, when we talked about the values of the company at stake, and if uh, if you're trying to um, ingrain uh, your tax 
compliance program into those values, but it's kind of fake, you know, it's, it's just uh, on paper and it doesn't truly resonate with users, the values, uh, not, not the tax issues, um, then most likely it's going to be uh, limited in efficiency. So I guess it, to me, it, the most relevant factor is not so much whether it's about tax or data protection or any other area of the law. What really matters is whether the culture and the values that you're trying to embody in the document uh, or the content that you're creating are genuine enough, are true enough. And, and here we touch upon, upon a very interesting topic, um, which is, you know, the degree to which corporations um, really uh, adhere to the values that they, put, that they put forward. There's always a difference huh, between what you say and what you do. That's called the entropy uh, degree. It's natural, but if this degree is too wide, then you're losing efficiency, that's for sure. But I don't think that it's so much connected to the area of, of, of the law. It's really more about the, the, the culture and the values themselves. Yeah. Okay, um, this has been a great discussion, but just to summarize it, what should everyone remember when doing compliance by design? I would simply say, um, think about your users. Um, the, the, the business is not the enemy. <laughs> quite the opposite. Don't be afraid uh, to talk to them. Uh, don't think that they won't want to talk to you. <laughs> um, and and uh, that's the key to success, really. And, and of, obviously, having the, uh, the right mindset, uh, having the willingness to go beyond the formalistic approach and to truly solve problems. Uh, that's the two key points in my view, caring sufficiently about the users and having the, the genuine willingness uh, to solve problems, not, not to fake uh, solving. <laughs> Elisabeth, what do you think? I think it would be um, also having a bit of courage to sort yeah. of um, change the status quo. If you have a compliance program that is that you know, and you know, when you're a lawyer, you know when it's working or when it's not working. And if you know that it's not working, then what's the harm in trying something different if you're trying to achieve what you're trying to achieve is true compliance? So I think a lot of um, people, and I think a lot of lawyers especially, have this self, you know, uh, barrier that they put themselves because I think we're also taught to only speak when we know something for sure and not we don't you know it's not a profession where people are just oh dare to dream and do whatever you want <laughs> it's very very <laughs> there's a lot of rules and there's a lot of ways that things have been done for a long time but if it's not working then what's the harm in at least trying to you know change the approach and as marie said what's what could be what could go wrong in asking your business people Actually, what do you think of this rule? Is it actually something you can apply? I'm not saying that you're going to change the rule because obviously you don't have that power, but more so how can you change the approach so that the rule is actually applied? So I think, yeah, a little bit of courage. And, and that's not, not to say that it's easy. We see a lot of you know, resistance to change. People have so much work with their day-to-day 
and having that time to, you know, just take a step back and say, okay, I'm going to do something differently. But that's also how, what, what Murray was saying, I think at the very beginning of this discussion is how much meaning you put into your job. So, and I think that's so important, especially for, um, you know, in-house lawyers, it can really feel sometimes like you're just the third wheel <laughs> and um, having taking back that power and ownership of your own topic is such, you know, a power move and it can really transform the way the legal division is perceived. And we've seen it actually, you know, change a lot uh, of things within the organizations we help. Um, knowing that the legal division has asked an external agency to gather them together and talk about their business problems is already a huge step in the collaboration and the, the position you have as a lawyer within a, an organization. So yeah, that, that would be it for me. Okay, thank you. Uh, Marie and Elizabeth, I think your career change from big corporations into Amurabi is really brave and inspiring. How would you encourage other professionals, I mean, legal designers, lawyers, developers, who are dreaming to start their own legal design agencies? Any words for them how to make it happen? <laughs> Yeah, I often get those questions from people wondering whether they're going to leap into uh, legal design or not. Um, I think as for me, the, the, the experience I can share is quite simple. Um, I find so much satisfaction in my job currently. And that is so, so different <laughs> from <laughs> what I used to experience before, which was a lot of frustration, a lot of um, inefficiency. And so I guess, you know, it's, it's priceless. That very personal and professional um, satisfaction, knowing that uh, what you do is meaningful, has a purpose and works <laughs> for real <laughs> um, you know what could be better than that so it's not to say that it's easy that it's all you know always glamorous and it can it can be lonely uh, I, I guess you know it has to be said as well uh, we're lucky to have a uh, you know, Elizabeth and I, we have uh, Antoine as a designer and Dominique and Mathilde and, and an entire team. And yet there are times where we can be discouraged because there are so many hurdles. Um, clients can be very difficult, um, you know, and we are we're <laughs> feeling that, you know, sometimes we can wonder, oh God, why do we put so much effort uh, when, hmm, you know, things could be otherwise. But at the end of the day, um, it's so truly satisfying that it's absolutely worth um, anything else, really. So um, I guess that's um, that's the answer on my side. Yeah, and for me, um, so it's obviously very different because I don't have a as a as a long and impressive career as Marie. So I kind of started uh, within legal design right away. But I have to say, I did face a lot of incomprehension and pushback and even maybe more than, you know, people with more experience. Because I think whenever we speak with people who have, you know, a few years of experience within the legal industry, they immediately understand the pain points. They've seen it. They, that doesn't mean they would leap into it themselves necessarily, but they understand 
where that comes from. With people, my generation, everyone's starting their first job. No one has experience. No one knows how it's like. <laughs> and so everyone's kind of like, what is this? Why are you doing it? I don't understand. And there's a lot of, you know, also peer pressure sort of to go a certain way and do things, um, you know, the, the way everyone's doing things, which is big law firms and then big companies and all that stuff. But for me, I think one of the true satisfaction about legal design is even whether or not a project is difficult and the client's being, you know, difficult and sometimes we don't achieve the results we want, even though we push so hard, but there's always an impact. There's so much impact. Like even if it's not the impact we initially wanted, that means the person we were speaking with was probably a bit less advanced as what we initially thought, but they did move forward. Like everyone moves forward in the different, in the process and the methodology. And that's not just lawyers, you know, business people, everyone changes perspective. It's always something new that people have never done. And it just shakes kind of the status quo. And for that is so, as Marie said, it's totally priceless. I mean, I hated the idea of sitting at a desk for 14 hours every day. It's just, it was like impossible to, to even like frame that into my mind. And what we do today, I mean, we do sit behind computers mostly <laughs> for a long, long time. <laughs> really long time. But it's so different because at the end of the, at the end of each day or each project, we can say, okay, we've changed someone's perspective, something, sometimes we change a huge amount. Sometimes we change a small amount, but we'll change something. And that for me is what is so motivating into doing this job. So go start your legal design agency. (laughs) (laughs) It was so much fun talking to you and really enjoyable. Thank you ladies for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, I love those discussions and I, I can't have enough. So, uh, you know, I, I miss I miss so much the legal design community. I mean, I know that it's it's impossible to meet in person currently, but as, as soon as possible, I want to jump on many planes and uh, <laughs> and, and hopefully uh, the whole community could uh, could gather at some point in the near future. Thank you. Thank you for being our guests. And thank you for listening to the Legal Design Podcast. For more information about us, please visit LegalDesignPodcast.com. You can also follow us on our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn.